Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, why don't we uh, open our Bibles to Job chapter 15. You know, I'm not used to teaching two, two Wednesdays in a row. Usually I have to do a, a catch-up, uh, kind of a, to get us up to speed from the last time. It's usually about a month, two or three weeks, or a month before, between uh, teachings. But this week, uh, we're in Job 15. Last week, in chapter 14, we... We caught a glimpse of the hopelessness of Job. And it wasn't a pretty picture, was it? It was, I compared it to a, a 15 round boxing match that he's just going through with, with these guys that are supposed to be his friends. And we found Job last week at kind of really a low point um, in this journey as he's trying to kind of, if you can sense him kind of scratching his way back to the surface out of his grief and out of his sorrow and all of the loss that he had. And it's like he's reaching for a helping hand and his friends are kicking dirt on him or, or stepping on his fingers as he's trying to dig his way out. Um, and I tried to find encouragement in that message last week, and it wasn't easy because it was a very, it's a, it's a tragic thing when you go through uh, difficulty, when you go through trials, when you, there's a loss in your, in your life, and you, you kind of depend on your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and kind of carry you through and encourage you and, and uh, show empathy towards you and and not judge you, you know, and, and, not, and not hurl insults at you as, as these guys did. Um, and, you know, we've seen it. We've seen the back and forth between Job and all of his friends. And we saw Job, you know, crying out to God because of it. You know, and really, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, the Bible says, right? And that's Jesus. Though our best friends may turn their back on us, God will be there. And so the encouraging part is uh, what we ended off last week in a verse from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, when we find ourselves in a hopeless situation like Job did, turn to God. Turn to God. He means you no evil. He always means you good. And when we see God as he is, um, we won't be overtaken by hopelessness. You know, the problem with Job's so-called friends is they, most of the time, they had an inaccurate view of who God was. And they projected that on Job and, and applied it to his situation. And, um, and that's why Job found himself in such hopelessness. And you see, if he saw God as he truly was all the time, and we don't always do that, right? 
Sometimes our tragedy and our sorrows overtake us, and we can't really see God who, as he is. But when we do, we know that it doesn't matter what people might say, but we know that we can trust in God. When we put our faith and trust in God as he's revealed himself through the scriptures, and remember, Job didn't have the scriptures. He had a relationship with God, um, but you know he didn't have the written word to refer back to like we do. How blessed we are uh, to be able to just, when we're down, just f- go through the Bible and just start to get encouraged again by the word of God. So the problem with Job's friends, as we've talked about before, is they allowed their warped view of God to influence how they, quote-unquote, ministered to Job. I wouldn't really call it, call it ministering to Job, but this is, these are the counselors that came uh, when he found himself in, uh, in a difficult place. Uh, they, they passed themselves off as ones who had superior understanding of God and his ways. Today, we might uh, compare them to bad theologians, right? Because there is such a thing, you know, theology is the study of, um, of God, uh, the study of religions, uh, but there's some, such a thing as bad theology. And at the very least, bad theology uh, can misinterpret a lot of portions of Scripture. At worst, it may send somebody uh, on the road to destruction. Um, it's been said that a, a theologian is like a blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat and finding it. I would say that that's more like a bad theologian. It's probably, it probably means that uh, a bad theologian uh, wants to prove what he already believes. And we have terms for this. And, and when, we, when we teach, we want to make sure, or when we study, we want to make sure that we're not putting our ideas into the Scripture. Jesus, right, um, is... Uh, is one who misinterprets Scripture by putting into Scripture his own ideas. We have to come to the Scriptures with an open mind and see what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Or else we'll come with a preconceived idea, right, of what the passage is saying. And when we do, we can kind of bend the Scripture to kind of fit what we want Scriptures to say. Now, I believe that there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture. Now, some Scriptures are more difficult to understand. Some Scriptures are more difficult to interpret. And those things are good for discussion. Um, and some scholars would dispute you know, verses or passages in the Bible because they see them differently. But the essentials must be agreed agreed upon. And those are the things that are clearly revealed in the scriptures. For those who are teaching, this is dangerous because we don't want our personal perspective to be interjected into the message. But as students of the Bible, which everyone should be, uh, all Christians are really called to study their Bible, to, to dig in, and to learn about who God is through the scriptures, it can warp your understanding of scriptures and of God. And this is what happened with Job's friends. 
They had this warped view of God. And they had a preconceived idea of why Job was suffering. And they kind of, uh, they kind of bent their interpretation of God to fit their idea. And then, of course, they would counsel him, uh, reflecting those, that, that bad idea of who God is. And it never turned out so well. Um, as we begin this next series of speeches, and we see how the chapters are broken down into different speeches by different uh, ones of, of Job's friends, and then sometimes in between we see Job's response to that, or sometimes he'll respond to God because of something that one of his friends said. So it's kind of this back and forth that we see. We're going to approach this next section here, and we're going to see how the kind of the rhetoric from his friends will he start to heat up. And really, I think their point is more to prove Job wrong than it is to minister to his needs. We never want to get to that place when we're uh, you know, in relationship with uh, another uh, brother or sister in Christ. Our, our point is not to prove them wrong, but it's to minister to their needs. And, um, and that's the wrong approach. So his friends were taking that approach and they wanted to defend their outlook to Job. And so that's kind of where, where they were coming from. And I think, you know, I, I don't know how long time, how much time has passed from the time that they came to Job and sat for seven days and didn't say a word until chapter 15 where we're at now. But I have a feeling it was quite, you know, it could have been quite a bit of time I think that they were already so invested in this mindset that they weren't about to back down. That they were so invested in this, Job, you're a sinner. Job, you did something wrong. Job, you deserved what you got. That they weren't about to back down now. Warren Wiersbe speaks about this in his commentary, Be Patient. And he says, Job's three friends were not true theologians because they only saw one side of the picture, the side they wanted to see. So again, they were interjecting their preconceived ideas into how they counseled Job. Um, And they found themselves in that position. When, when When we get to tonight's passage in Job 15, we again hear from another one of Job's friends, Eliphaz. Now, we've already heard from Eliphaz prior. And um, he, a, a lot of times in this chapter, he'll kind of repeat what he said before. I think his idea is that, Job, you didn't listen to me the first time. I'm going to try it again. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told you the first time because I really believe this is wh- why you're suffering. But he addresses him this time with even less compassion and less empathy than the first time. We see no patience in Eliphaz. We see no desire in him to alleviate any of Job's suffering. So kind of tuck that in the back of your mind as we go through this chapter tonight and know that this is not a model for how you counsel someone. All right, so this is more of a model how not to counsel. So we're going to jump in in verses 1 through 6. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge? 
and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. So this is real kind of Eliphaz to say to Job. And as Job battled back, and we've seen him battle back, they became only more entrenched, right, in their condemnation of Job. So he repeats this charge that Job's words are empty. Nothing he can say is going to, uh, is going to change their minds about why Job is in the trouble that he's in. And we see this. This is a common tactic in debate. If you can't win the argument on merit, attack the other person's words. We see this in the political arena all the time. And unfortunately, we're probably going to see a lot more of it for the next six months, right? One side disagrees with the other, but they don't offer any ideas of their own for the solutions to to solve the problems. They just attack, attack, attack the other person's words. And this kind of attack really looks to end the discussion. It doesn't look for an open dialogue at all. And we see our political and our social discourse kind of, you know, going down this road more and more just mudslinging with no openness to, to the other person's ideas. In verse 4, we, you know, Eliphaz, he, he attacks his words, says he's empty. His words are empty. They're meaningless. Uh, nothing he can say is going to change their minds. Then he attacks their prayer, his prayer life. And that's kind of, you don't, we don't know how Job prayed. They don't know how Job prayed, what his relationship with the Lord was like. He says in verse 4, you restrain the prayer, you restrain your prayer before God. How do they know? But I think they probably figure that if, if he was really a man of prayer, then God would answer his prayers and he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't find himself in the situation that he's in. Um, at the beginning of the book, we saw that Job was a righteous man. Right? We saw that he did have a relationship with God. And so Eliphaz saw what Job was going through and he assumed that his prayer life must be lacking, right? Because of all the troubles he had. Has anyone ever told you that? Has anyone ever told you that, you know, your troubles are because you know, your relationship with the Lord must be, must be off? You must not have a good prayer life. Um, I hope no one's ever said that to you. But that could be something that someone who doesn't understand the scriptures and doesn't know who God is and doesn't have compassion and empathy towards you might say. Or someone who doesn't even maybe know you well might say that. He may have been saying that Job only related to God because God had blessed him. And now that God had removed everything, that he must not have a good relationship with the Lord anymore. This is the same accusation, right, that Satan made against Job right at the beginning of the book. In Job 1, 9 through 11, it says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the same accusation. Now, Job's friends weren't privy to this heavenly discussion that uh, Satan was having with God. But they had the same idea in their minds. That obviously, Job, when you were being blessed, your relationship with the Lord was great. But as soon as he removed his hand, you must, you must, have, had a, you must have a lacking uh, relationship with God, with God. But it wasn't necessarily true. And we can't make that connection with people. So we have to make sure that we, we minister to folks in a way that um, is going to bring them uh, healing in the midst of their pain, not make their pain worse. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. So Eliphaz here is telling Job that he and his other friends don't have anything to say to prove their point, because Job's don't, they don't need to say anything. Job's own words are going to condemn him. Job's, Job's own sinfulness is going to come out in what he says. His words will be the evidence needed to convict him of his unrighteousness. And this is another tactic used by people who just want to kind of shut down the opposition, right? They destroy a person's integrity by saying their own words are going to prove their guilt. Don't try to, don't try to tell me that you're not guilty. Don't keep trying to, to, to plead your innocence in this because every time you say it, it, it sounds like you're more and more guilty. Did you ever hear that? You know, Hamlet in, in Hamlet, Shakespeare said, the lady doth protest too much. A modern version of that might be, he who excuses himself, accuses himself. You ever hear someone who's always trying to just excuse themselves or, or tell, you that they're, tell you that they're innocent and try to prove their point? And sometimes they're, they are innocent, but sometimes they're, they're not. And so Job's friends here were applying this to Job's situation. They were applying this to Job's situation to shut down the opposition. Job, nothing you can say is going to help. As a matter of fact, every time you open your mouth, you just make yourself more guilty and more guilty. In verses uh, 7 through 10, Eliphaz now accuses Job of lacking understanding of God because of his inexperience in life. He goes on and says in verse 7 through 10, Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that's not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. So Eliphaz is saying here that Job was too young, too inexperienced to understand God's ways. That it was only the, 
the ones who had been around for a while, who had experienced life. They claimed that it took years of living before you could gain wisdom to be able to put all of life's circumstances, the good, the bad, and everything in order to understand who God was. And again, he said, you know, both the gray-haired and the aged are among us. In other words, Job, our, uh, the three of us here, we've had experience. We've been around for a while. We've lived life. We understand things. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. You, you, won't, you don't quite get it. And again, this is another trick uh, of, of debating. If you can't counter the ideas of your rival, mock the person himself. Personal attacks. You know, we see that a lot in the political arena. And it can be very effective. It really can. You know, you say something long enough against your opponent and people are going to start to believe it. So they started to say, Job, you could never know what we know. It's, you'll never be as old as we are. You'll never catch up to us, Job. We have the experience. We have the years. We know and you will never know, Job. So that kind of cuts it right down, right there. It, it cuts off any, any debate at all because Job can never match up. He can never be uh, as wise as they are. But Job never said he was smarter than them, did he? He never said that he had some special revelation from God. That was their claim against Job. He knew that they were older than he was. But you and I both know years of experience is no guarantee that you're going to gain wisdom, right? We've seen very wise young people and very foolish people who've been around for years and years. We see that every single day. And it's no guarantee. Psalm 119, 97 through 100, speaks about where our wisdom comes from. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter how much experience we have in this world. Uh, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. How did, this, how did the psalmist gain wisdom? Through obedience to the word of God. Through obedience to God. Loving God's law. Loving God's word. Meditating on his word. Allowing it to pour over us each and every day and change us. Change us from the inside out. That's the only way that we can gain true wisdom, right? In this world. It doesn't matter how old or young we are. It doesn't matter. You know, the psalmist here is saying, I'm wiser than my teachers. Obviously, he was saying, my teachers are more experienced. They have more wisdom, more years, more years than I do. I understand more than the older people who have been around for years. Why? Because I'm obedient to the word of God. I'm obedient to God's word. Apart from God, we really don't have any insight into how we're supposed to live. It has to be godly wisdom, not man's wisdom. 
And that's the mistake, again, that his friends were making here. Verse 11 through 13, Eliphaz here considers the counsel that he and his friends were giving to Job. He, he considers it the consolation of God. He puts their counsel on this high plane. And watch what, watch what he says here. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes wink at? What do your eyes wink at? That you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. So Eliphaz is saying here, Job, you should recognize, see, that we're God's messenger. We're bringing consolation from God to you, Job. We're bringing words of comfort to you from God. And look what he does. He, he, he actually says that his words are spoken gently. Most of their words were not very gentle words. But he, again, he's got this warped view of God, got this warped view of Job. He's even got a warped view of him and his friends. You know, they have more wisdom. They're speaking directly for God to Job. So, you know, this counsel that he was giving to Job was way off base. Eliphaz here questions Job's defiance against God because he discarded Eliphaz's gentle words. Now, I don't know. I really don't know how he could characterize his words as gentle. But I know that we never really see our own arrogance, right? We never really understand our own attitude Someone else may be able to point it out to us a lot better, but we don't, many times, we don't see it in ourselves. And that's the only thing I can think that was happening here. So, verses 14 through 16, Aliphaz goes on and he repeats the accusations that he made against Job in, er, even in earlier, his earlier speech to Job. He says in verse 14, What is man that he could be pure? And who was born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy who drinks iniquity like water. So Eliphaz here is saying Job is claiming to be pure. He's claiming to be sinless. But Job, there's none that are sinless. There's none that are pure. There's no person born of a woman who's righteous. Now, Technically, Eliphaz is correct, right? Because we know in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul actually tells us this. In Romans 3, in verse 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So Eliphaz wasn't far off speaking the truth. But again, did Job ever claim that he was pure? Did Job ever claim that he he was sinless? No, he never did. So again, be careful 
Um, you know, when, if, you know, I hope you, nobody ever finds themselves in these positions, but it's a lesson for us that sometimes our enemies will attack us with half-truths, with untruths, and they'll make accusations against us of things that we think or we've said that we've never said and ideas that we've never had before. This is what Eliphaz was doing to Job. He was telling him, Job, you think you're so pure? You think you're so sinless and so righteous? There's nobody that's sinless. There's nobody that's righteous. And we know that that biblical that biblical principle, right, is correct. But it's, it's applied incorrectly to Job's situation. It brings no peace or comfort to Job. And it's also untrue. He never claimed that he was perfect or pure. And then Eliphaz goes on and he gives Job a couple of warnings here. And the most... The... the, the biggest warning that he gives him is that Job, that God is going to judge the wicked. And what he's trying to say, he's trying to make the connection here that God's going to judge the wicked and Job, you're being judged. So therefore, Job, you must be wicked. So, and he did the same thing in chapter five. Um, he, he, he spoke about some of the things that, uh, come upon the righteous, but he also spoke about some of the things that came upon the wicked. And he does it again here. And in verses 17 through 19, and actually all the way to the end of the chapter, um, it just, he just goes after Job. And he tells him here, Job, this is what God does to the wicked, and this is why you're suffering. In verse 17, he says, I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. So he's referring here to tradition, Eliphaz. He's saying, listen, we've known this f- for you know, years, that God judges the wicked. This is not anything new. Our fathers taught us this, and we pass it down generation to generation, and we know that this is who God is. And so, therefore, it's very simple math. Job, you're a sinner. God judges sinners, and that's why you're being judged. And so, he's talking here about tradition. And, you know, traditions can be good, um, but sometimes they can suppress the truth. Traditions sometimes can, um, you know, they're supposed to guide us to the truth. But they're not necessarily truth in and of themselves. And it talks about sometimes, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about sometimes the traditions um, needing to be broken. Sometimes he spoke about the traditions of man um, being put ahead of the traditions of God. And sometimes man's traditions get in the way of what God is trying to do. Um, Jesus spoke about this in the Gospels in Luke 5. 37 and 38, it says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So we honor traditions, right? Traditions can be good. But traditions that keep us stuck 
in the past. And don't allow for a new work of the Lord uh, need to be set aside. And so we need to be careful with, with tradition. Sometimes we get so stuck in our ways. Um, some denominations get so stuck in their ways. And I don't want to, you know, sometimes Calvary chapel, chapels can get stuck in their ways, right? And God's trying to do a new work and we're, you know, pushing against that. You know, we need to be open, open to what God's doing uh, today, which may be an extension of an old tradition, but something kind of new. Now, Jesus didn't come to kind of rework Judaism into some new religion, right? He had a new covenant. He wanted to establish a new work, right? The traditions of the Old Testament, right, pointed toward Jesus. They were a picture of what he would ultimately do in fulfilling all of the Old Testament, right? Through his perfect life. And the fact that his sacrifice was that perfect sacrifice. So it's important that we understand the traditions. And it's important. Jesus didn't say, he didn't come to abolish the traditions or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a difference there. So we take those traditions and we use them. And it guides us into whatever the new work is that God wants to do in our lives, individually, right? And in the church, we need to be open. We're always open to whatever God wants to do. And going on to to, uh, verses 20 to 26, we're just going to see this description of the wicked man that Eliphaz uses, um, the one who will receive God's ultimate judgment. And he says in verse 20 through 26, the wicked man rides with pain all his days and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness for a sword is waiting for him. I think that's where we found Job last week, kind of hopeless, right? He wanders about for bread and saying, where is it? He knows that A day of darkness is ready at hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Now, yeah, there are people, and sometimes we even can get to a place where we kind of put up our hand against God. You know, where we're stubborn and defiant and rebellious, right, against God. And what Eliphaz is saying here is ultimately the one who continues, continues, continues to put his hand up against God and say, no, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't care what your word says. I'm going to do my own thing, right? Eventually, God will confirm that. In him, right? Confirm that in him. But we also know that sometimes the wicked prosper. And and that's what probably gets us frustrated from time to time. Is that we look around us in the world and we sometimes see the wicked actually prospering. Doing well. um, You know, being you know, rich and wealthy and having a lot of friends. And, uh, you know, never seeming to have difficulties or troubles. And we look around and we, we think to ourselves, something's wrong. This isn't the way it should be. 
And so we kind of can side, we, we side a little bit with Eliphaz in his description that God will judge the wicked because we want that to be so. Well, we know ultimately that will be so, right? But I think about when David, you know, in a lot of his psalms were complaint psalms to, to God because um, he, had, he had a lot of difficulty in his life. Right? He had family that was all messed up and he had uh, people that were trying to kill him. and um, he's, He had a lot of difficulty. Plus he had guilt and he had sin in his life. So David, you know, he had a lot of, a lot of trials, so to speak. But he looked around him too and he saw a lot of times where the wicked were prospering. And Psalm 73 is really an awesome psalm because um, we can relate a lot to what David uh, says in this psalm. And I'm going to just quote a few verses from this psalm as we kind of get this picture that, you know, although, yeah, the wicked sometimes do get judged in this world, sometimes they don't. Um, So in verses 2 through 5 in Psalm 73, David writes, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. You know, sometimes we see people getting away with it, right? And it frustrates us a little bit. Um, he goes on in verses, verse 7. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They have, they're, they're prosperous. Uh, they have all the money that anybody could want. Uh, verse 11 and 12. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. You know, sometimes the arrogance um, of, of people to say, God doesn't know. If he knew, then he would judge me. He would strike me down, right? If God knew. So he, he either turns a blind eye or he's really not, he's not all-knowing. It's impossible. And so some people have that, uh, you know, that arrogant attitude. David goes on, when I thought how to understand this, verse 16 and 17, it was too painful for me. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to, to understand. And then he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. So what brings David back in this? What brings him back to reality in this? Well, it's God. It's having that alone time with God, right? It's, for us, it's digging into his word and having him reveal himself through the pages of the Bible so we have an understanding of who God is, right? And then we'll be able to better go about our life And sometimes see things that don't make sense. Why the wicked are prospering. Why the righteous are always suffering and in difficulty. And we will be able to face those things with a proper perspective. You know, we don't see everything that God's doing in this world, right? We don't understand it all. But we need to just learn to trust in him. And uh, it will help us. You know, not get so frustrated 
with the things that go on around us in this world. No, always remember, God's got everything under control. In his perfect timing, in his perfect way, he's going to work it all out. Right? Amen? Okay, we're going to just finish up here in these last few verses. And again, it's just this attack, this attack, this attack of Eliphaz against Job. Though he has covered his face, in verse 27, with fatness, with his fatness, and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree, for the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. So this is, really, this is really an attack of Eliphaz against Job because he's describing the wicked. But in what he's saying subtly, he's really pointing it directly at Job. You know, verse 27 through 29 tells us that though the wicked man may seem to prosper for a while, eventually their wealth will disappear. Well, that happened to Job, didn't it? Everything was taken from him. Um, verse 30 tells us about the darkness, right? He will not depart from darkness. And Job, we find Job in darkness sometimes, in just his, uh, his demeanor. And we found him in hopelessness. And that's, you know, again, Eliphaz is kind of attacking Job without saying that it's, that it's him. These verses are harsh. And they could almost be described as cruel. Uh, to Job. And remember, these are the guys who were supposed to bring him comfort. These are the guys who were supposed to counsel him and help him through this tragedy. We, we almost forget what happened to Job reading all this because, you know, we think, well, nobody would ever be that mean that when somebody goes through something like this, that they would attack them like this. But their self righteousness and their misapplication of uh, God's character and all of that clouded the way they, they counseled Job. And we understand, right? Because we have the New Testament. We have the entirety of the scriptures at our disposal. We understand that ultimately, ultimately, the wicked will be judged, right? We understand that ultimately, the righteous will be rewarded. Praise the Lord. But when we observe life on this earth, right, sometimes it seems like the opposite is true. We also have to remember that God is long-suffering towards sinners. You know, when we see the wicked prospering, it may be that God has somebody in line ready to stand before them and offer them salvation in Jesus Christ and they may accept it, right? We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know how God's going to work this all out. But we know the Bible says that he's long-suffering towards sinners. 
Thank God he doesn't zap us, right, as soon as we sin. But he gives us chances and chances and chances. And I know for me, personally, I'm so, I'm so glad that he gave me all the chances that he did. Second Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we thank him for that, right? We praise him for that. And then in Romans 8.18, just to kind of put all this in perspective, Paul tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.